God is glorified in our submission. Now it is accurate to say good morning. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. It is my honor to be on this pulpit and share God's message with you. Yeah, six years ago, I, I was having difficulties waking up early to attend morning services. Throughout the pandemic, I just missed praising God in the morning because I felt like He deserved to be worshipped first thing in the morning, first thing on his day. So he locked down the whole city for two months for me to have this joy. <laughs> in this day and age, submitting to any kind of authority is not something people will look after. If given a choice, I think most of us would like to work for ourselves instead of working for someone. If we have no choice but to work for a company, we would like to work for the ones that have a flat culture, right? Where there's not much hierarchy. You don't have to be micromanaged by your boss. And the reason is that most of us value freedom more than submission. Our desire is to be constrained by the least possible rules and orders. But is this always good to maximize our freedom and to disvalue authority? Probably not, right? Rulers and authorities are actually essential for peace and development of society and nation. Even in the form of monarchy, where a country is ruled by an individual, a king, if the king seeks for the good of his people, it can be a great society to live in. But if the king seeks his personal benefit, then he can turn into a tyrant and the people may suffer greatly. So submitting to authority is not always bad. It just really depends on who the authority is. And as people of God, we know we have a king to serve. And we know that our king is mighty, fair, just, and loving. So we are called to be in his kingdom and to live according to his law and order. So in today's message, we will be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 to 16. And my desire for us is to be reminded that it is good to follow God's order because God is glorified in our submission. That is our main message. God is glorified in our submission. Now, throughout the verses, we'll focus on the idea of submission and see it in four perspectives. Four perspectives. One, the call to submit. Second is the practice of submission. Third is the purpose of submission. And last, fourth, is the glory in submission. So let's first read verse 2 to 3 to understand our call to submit. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 to 3. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. 
But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So our call to submit is a call to follow God's created order of authority. You can see from the first two verses that we have just read that Paul's desire for the church is for them to understand that God has designed a specific order of authority for this world. In verse 3, Paul presents the order. God is the head of every head. He is a sovereign God. There's no one above him. And Christ is the head of every man and woman. And at last, man is the head of his wife. So that is the order God has created. And the key word here is head, and it is clearly a metaphor. In the context of the scripture, we can understand that head refers to one who lead, rule, or have higher authority. The same order is mentioned in the letter of Ephesians by Paul. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 to 22, says that God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So this shows that God has sovereignty as the ultimate source of all power, and he submits all power under Christ. And the phrase head of all things, head over all things, refers to the power and dominion of Christ. So therefore, the word head indicates authority. And Paul emphasized here that Christ is head over all things to the church. So the church, which is us, must submit to Christ and acknowledge his authority. So this aligns with what we have just read in 1 Corinthians. God gave power to Christ to be the ruler of all things, and church is called to submit. And later in Ephesians 5, Paul continues to write about authority of husband and the submission of his wife. He explains that marriage is meant to reflect the relationship of Christ and the church. Chapter 5, verse 23 writes, The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So therefore the order is clear. Christ submits to God, church submits to Christ, and wives submit to their husbands. You may ask, how can this be? Isn't this discrimination, sexism? We live in 21st century. We live in a society where men and women should be treated equally, right? But if you think about it, if you think about the nature of God's relationship with Christ and Christ's relationship with the church, there is no discrimination. Although the relationship has its order of authority, its foundation is sacrificial love. God loved Christ. Christ is God's only begotten Son. When Christ began his ministry, God proclaimed to people that Jesus is his beloved Son, with whom he is well pleased. God loved Jesus as his only Son. And Christ responded with perfect obedience to God. Jesus said that he came down from heaven not to accomplish his own will, but the will of God who sent him. In the same way, Christ loved the church. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He died for church. In the same way, in the same verse, husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So the key element in the biblical authority is sacrificial and selfless love to the one who submits. We see that in God's design of order, there's a clear inequality in authority, but not in value. If the one who is assigned with authority sacrificially loves the one who submits to him, then the relationship is opposite of being abusive or discriminative. Because the sacrifice of the head shows the worthiness of the one who submits. If someone is willing to die for you, by his action, he's demonstrating that your life is actually worth more. Therefore, the question we should ask is not whether God's design is discriminative, but we should ask ourselves, are we submitting to God's call and living out the relationship of Christ and church? Husbands, we must understand that God's call to submit is also a call to lead. And the call to lead is a call to love. We should spend no time thinking about our given authority that we have in our family. Our time should be spent thinking about our responsibility as a husband. Ephesians 5.26 says that Christ gave himself up for the church so that he might sanctify her. So then that should be our desire as husbands. The goal is for your wife's sanctification, for her spiritual growth. And for some of us, it starts by working on your own spiritual discipline and your own submission to Christ. The best way for us to lead is for us to submit to the will of God and to work on, on our own. So husbands, are you doing that? Are you spending your time to work on your godliness? Do you desire to be a godly man? Your godliness is more important than your performance at work. It is more important than whether or not your favorite team wins championship. It is more important than your leisure time. Because as head of the family, you will one day hold accountable for your leadership. Now for sisters who are married, my encouragement for you is to remember that wife's submission to her husband is a biblical command. It is not based on your husband's ability or the lack of ability. Have faith in Christ and help him to lead the family and serve the Lord. And submission doesn't have to be blindly following husband's order. You can challenge him in a loving and respectful way for him to be a godly man. And to sisters who desire to be married, let this call be a reminder for you about the essential quality of your future spouse, and that is his willingness to submit to our Lord Jesus. If he himself does not submit to the Lord, no matter how attractive, smart, or successful he is, he cannot be a good husband for you because he cannot imitate the love of Christ. Besides the headship of the husband, the scripture generally, as a general calling for men, is to be leaders. 
it sets a clear expectation for men to be the representation of strength and courage. Before David's death, his last word for Solomon, his son, is, Be strong and show yourself a man. There's a distinct word for woman. But he said, Show yourself a man. And at the end of Paul's letter in Corinthians, he writes, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, and act like men. Be strong. And throughout the Old Testament, you can see the patterns of dying fathers telling their sons to be strong and courageous. And these are necessary qualities for a leader, strength and courage. And God also called men to be elders of the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, An elder must be above reproach and the husband of one wife. And as much honor as you think there is in these calling, there is great responsibility and danger as well. The scripture warns us that not many should be teachers because they will be judged more strictly by God. And strength and courage is established to serve the family and church as a sacrifice. Now, if one day our church face some kind of danger or persecution, the expectation is for men to rise up because they are called to lead. They are called to protect and they are called to provide a sense of security for the church. Now, throughout the history, Christian men have been imprisoned, tortured, and also killed to fulfill this calling. And this doesn't mean that women are inferior or less capable or less courageous. It means that God has assigned men to sacrifice first to initiate the love for his wife and church because he is called to imitate Christ. Coming back to verse 3, we can see the order of authority is a biblical principle. And Paul's desire for the church is to apply the principle to different aspects of our lives. So we have to put principle of submission into practice. And this is our second point of our message, the practice of submission. In response to principle, we can either live out or live against it. And some of the Corinthians chose to live against God's principle. So you can read from verse 4 to verse 6 how Paul confronts the church on a particular practice they have done that violates God's design order. So let's read verse 4 to verse 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So the focus here is, on wife's public behavior of head covering. And Paul argues that wife dishonors her head or her husband by uncovering her physical head in public. And according to verse 5, uncovering her head is as extreme as having her head shaved. Paul's intention is to express that uncovering of the head is an act of intentional and extreme form 
of rebellion. It rebels against wife's husband, rebels against God, and also against the culture. First, it rebels against her husband. In Corinthian culture, head covering for a wife is used to symbolize her submission and belonging to her husband. It is a sign of her marital status, proclaiming that to others that she is no longer available. Now, just as verse 10 describes, head covering is a symbol of authority. So if wife does not cover her head, it is offensive to her husband because she is declining her submission to him. She is undermining her husband's authority. Second, it also rebels against God. The authority of the husband is given by God, so therefore for a wife not to cover her head, she is disobeying God's order. And the same principle applies to the husband. Right? It writes that in the beginning of verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So it means a husband proclaims his submission to his wife. He also violates God's design order. It is also considered a rebellion. And the third aspect of rebellion is against the culture. It doesn't mean that Paul is suggesting that believers should act in agreement with the culture, but because it is a public behavior, Paul is emphasizing it as a bad witness to the world. The act of head covering is a recognizable symbol for all people, including non-Christians. So the act of uncovering her head expresses contradiction to the God's teaching. And even if the followers of God do not submit to his order, then how can believers bear witness to others who do not believe? But what used to be a rebellion or rebellious practice back then may not be perceived samely today. Customs have changed throughout time. Head covering is no longer a sign of submission. But I believe Christians should continue to live out God's principle through the customs of modern culture. And there are other symbols of submission that we can think of in today's culture that carries a similar meaning. We can see the ring as a symbol of belonging. Right? Husbands and wives wear, wear their ring to proclaim their submission to each other, to proclaim that they belong to each other. And we can also see names as a symbol of submission. In the West, it is fitting to have a wife's, la- to have wife's last name changed to her husband's. It is considered a sign of unity and submission. Although we don't follow the same practice here in China, children carrying the name of their father implies similar meaning. These traditions honor the husband as the head of the family. And these are good practice of submission for us to follow and bear witness of God's will. And it is important to clarify that by living out God's principle, we are not defenders of tradition, but truth. We are not defending the tradition, but we are defending the truth. We don't choose to follow traditions for the reason that it it has always been there. That is not a good reason. Because tradition itself carries no value. Just because it has been kept for a long time does not mean that it has value or it is honorable to God. 
What matters is the meaning behind the custom. If the meaning aligns with God's principle, then we should follow. If the value or the message behind the custom contradicts to God's principle, then we must resist. We only use traditions to defend principles that are given by God through His Word. And that is our practice of God's principle. In this case, submission. So we have seen Paul's command for us to submit to God's order and also examples of how to live out the principle of authority and submission. Now we may ask, what is the meaning behind our submission? Why do we submit? What is the purpose of it? So the question leads us to the third point of our message, that is the purpose of our submission. Now from verse 7 to 12, Paul explains the purpose of submission is to sustain God's intention in creation. The purpose of submission is to sustain God's intention in creation. The authority of the husband and the submission of the wife is rooted in God's intention since creation. So let us read verse 7 to 12. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was, woman, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So Paul argues in verse 7 that the reason for man not to cover his head is that man is the glory and image of God. Now he is referring back to Genesis where Adam was created first to have dominion over the earth. So man was created directly as a representation of God's authority on earth. However, Paul explains that women should cover their head because they are the glory of man. So verse 8 and 9 writes, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So this refers to God's intention for creating Eve. It is to be the helper of Adam, to be the helper of man. Thus man and woman have a different roles even since the creation, since the beginning when God intended for man and woman to have different responsibilities. Eve was created to help Adam. In Genesis chapter 2, God said, it is, not good for, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper for him. So the role of a wife is to help her husband. John MacArthur explained in his sermon, Woman was made to manifest man's authority and man's will, as man was made to manifest God's authority and God's will. So there's a clear hierarchy in authority between God, man, or husband, and wives ever since the creation of the world. The woman was made to help carry out man's will, and man was made to carry out God's will. And the reason for Paul to appeal to creation as a purpose of submission 
is because he wants the church to know that men have no right in changing God's intention. If God created man and woman for different purpose, then as his people we should sustain his intention. We are not made to change or challenge the intention of our Creator. The scripture is clear in showing that men are called to be leaders of their family and church. But based on history, news, or even some of our own experience, we know that men can abuse their power. From domestic violence, sexual abuses, human trafficking, there are devastating events happening in this world where men forcefully take advantage of women. These are evil deeds, and these events are proof of men's sinful nature. Men have abandoned their call to honor God and choose to assault against what God has created, which was meant to be good and to display His glory. Husbands are supposed to sacrificially love their wives, but their sinful desire turned them to love themselves, to lust after their own honor. And some men, in their blindness, may even believe that somehow their, their authority also gives them superior value over their wives. But that is far away from the truth, and Paul knows that. It is, that is why he writes in verse 11 and 12, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. So Paul is expressing a sense of interdependence between man and woman to, em to emphasize that they're equal in value. Even though woman is made from man and for man, but by God's design, men are born from woman. Without woman, there will be no man in this world except Adam. There, therefore, in a general sense, life of man and woman are bound together where no one can argue that one can live without the other. But one truth is clear is that both man and woman are dependent and sustained by God. It says, all things are from God. Again, the sovereignty of God is emphasized here in the relationship. Both man and woman ultimately submit to their Creator. Even as we think of marriage, we should not think of it as simply a relationship between husband and wife. God has to be part of the marriage. Neither husband nor the wife nor their children is part of or the center of the marriage. God must be the center of marriage. Because marriage's purpose is for God's glory. So the authority of the husband and the submission of wife is meant to bear witness to the purpose of God's creation. It is meant to sustain God's will since creation. So until this point, Paul has been appealing, appealing to Corinthians um, in a sense of reasoning to persuade them about the need to submit to God's order. He guides them to recall God's purpose in creation and wants them to think about the importance of submitting to their Creator's intention. But from verse 14 to 16, Paul switched his approach and appealed to people's common sense. He tries to tell the church that by acting against God's design, they are not just rebelling against God's order, 
but also distorting the glory of God's design. So we look into last part of our message, the glory in submission, and that is in verse 14 to 16. So he writes, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So from verse 14, Paul begins to draw attention to the things that are more apparent and obvious. The key phrase here is, does not nature itself teach you? Does not nature itself teach you? The word nature means common sense and instinct. He wants the church to see that this is not a complicated issue. You don't need a theologian to see what is wrong in the behavior of mixing up God's design for two genders. Paul knows that when God's creatures submit to God's intention of creation, they bring glory to God. When God's creature submit to God's intention of creation, naturally, they bring glory to God. That is why Paul writes in verse 15, it is woman's glory to have her long hair for covering. He's pointing out that the natural look of man and woman glorifies God. Glorified God. Because in the aspect of creation, God's creatures carry the natural ability to glorify God in the most obvious way. God's creature carried the natural ability to glorify God in the most obvious way. There are plenty of verses that reveals this truth. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handwork. Romans 1 verse 20 writes that God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We don't have to look at the verses to know the truth, right? You just have to look. Look at the trees, look at the birds, look at the skies, or just look at ourselves. See how our hands are made, our eyes, our mind. Everything is beautifully made, and it is impossible for you not to see the glory of God his wisdom, his power, his creativity. Now the problem is just that people don't admit it. People know that it's beautiful, but they don't acknowledge that it reflects God's glory. All creatures are created to proclaim God's divine nature. Therefore, we as human beings have the same responsibility. By nature, we carry the glory of God and even more than other creatures, because we are made in His image. So the question for us to ask ourselves is, do we live as people who carry the glory of God? Do we live as people who carry the glory of God? It is not only in our appearance, but also in all aspects of our lives, we carry the weight of His glory. The way we speak, the way we act, and the way we think. 
I remember during the summer of my junior year in college, which is when I began, when I about to begin my last year in college. I knew senior year was important for me to look for jobs. I would need a suit to attend interviews and career fairs. So I went to my father and asked him to take me to buy a suit. My father was very excited and I think he wanted me to look good in front of the interviewers even more than I did. So he took me to Hugo Boss and bought me a very expensive suit, probably more expensive than any suit that he himself owns. So for me, that suit carries a weight. In some sense, I have to live up to that suit. Now the pressure is on me to attend all the career fairs and apply to all the interviews. I have to talk professionally. I have to prepare my resume. I have to act in confidence. and have to make firm handshakes. I felt the responsibility of honoring my father with that suit. Now, brothers and sisters, the weight of the glory in carrying God's image is much greater than that. Since creation, we are called to live up to the glory of God. That was our calling, and that is still our calling. But if we are honest to ourselves, we know we have failed miserably. Because for us to live up to that glory, we must live in perfect obedience. We must submit to God in all aspects of our lives, in all places and all time. But in our sin, we wasted God's glory for our own lust, chasing after things of this world, ignoring the responsibility as God's creation. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It did not say that we have sinned and broke the law of God, which is also true, but that was not the meaning that Paul was intended to speak. He writes that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, sin not only alienates us from God, but sin, sin alienates us from seeing him in his glory, loving that glory because it's his, reflecting that glory, and one day being brought to manifest that glory in ourselves when we see him face to face. Now friends, we have all fall short of God's glory. We cannot live up to that call with perfect submission. And our failure has its consequence, which is to faith the wrath of God. And that is also to see another aspect of his glory, his love for righteousness and his hate for sin. The truth is that no matter what we do, God is glorified. The words, uh, even the world perfectly submit. Now, if the world perfectly submit to him, he will be glorified. But even if the world, the whole world, rebels against him, he can still be glorified in his judgment. Then you may ask, where does it leave us? Is there a way for us to restore our purpose of being God's creation? To have a second chance? 
and to reflect again on his glory? The answer is yes, but the answer is not in our own deeds. The answer is in Christ Jesus. God's ultimate glory is fulfilled in his son, Jesus Christ, who descended from heaven and lived a life in perfect submission to God. The book of Hebrews tells us that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And in Christ's obedience, he chose to exchange his glory with our punishment. He died on a cross to bear the wrath of God for us. So through Jesus, our God gave us another layer of garment that is even greater than our created image. It is the righteousness of his son. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, the prophet writes, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul, my soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. God's glory is fulfilled in Christ's submission. But by faith in Christ, by believing in Jesus for who he is and for what he has done for us, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. When God sees us, he sees Christ, who is holy and blameless. Thus the glory in submission is the glory of Christ. We shall conclude. I hope I've made a clear argument in presenting to you God's calling for us to submit to his order of authority. And I pray that you can see the high calling of God to man and woman. But most importantly, by God's grace, may all of us see that we have fallen short of that calling. And we must embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now, as believers, even though our sin has been washed away, we are still called to submit. We submit to God not for the sake of being saved, but for truly knowing who he is and for his loving kindness to his people. After the Lord's Supper, we'll close our service by singing again our preparation song, His Robes for Mine. I would encourage you all to meditate on the reality of the gospel, that God's only Son is willing to die for us, is willing to exchange his righteousness for our sin. As the lyric writes, His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered beneath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I am justified. And in Christ I live, for in my place he died. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you to surrender everything to you to know that we have nothing to offer, even as your creation. We have failed to, to glorify you, given that you have given us everything that we need, everything that we have to proclaim your glory, but we have failed. And we thank you for your Son, who came from heaven to accomplish the task that we were called to accomplish. 
He died for us so that we can come to you blameless and holy. Lord, we pray that your glory may be shine in our Savior and also through us, that we may submit to you with joy, knowing that everything has been accomplished. And we can sing to you and can praise you, knowing that we have been saved for eternal life, to join you, to witness your glory at the final day, Lord. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.